I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hey, it's Whitney Terrell, one half of the fiction nonfiction podcast team. My co host, Vivi Ganeshanathan, is up in Minneapolis for the holidays, and she is tweeting away about our year's worth of episodes. If you want to check out her Twitter feed or the show's Twitter feed at FNF Talk, you'll see a lot of that wonderful evidence there. We normally would be scheduled to have an episode come out the day after Christmas, but Nobody wants us to do a new episode on the day after Christmas, so we are going to have a wonderful interview that we recorded at the uh, live at the Miami Book Fair with T.C. Boyle coming out next Thursday, January 2nd. And for today, we are going to give you an archived episode of ours from last April. It's about literary presses, how to publish in them, what their editors are looking for. We speak to Bridget Hughes from A Public Space and Jennifer Baker from Electric Literature and the Minorities in Publishing podcast and a cast of dozens from a Farrar Strauss and Giroux party at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, or AWP, conference in Portland this winter. Enjoy, and we'll see you next week. Well, we're here at the FSG Originals party and uh, spot, party sponsored by FSG Originals and Paper Darts. This yeah. is an unknown question that we uh, have for ourselves, which is which is the right bar to go to? Right. Dan Coyce is here from Slate Magazine to give us that answer. Uh, the answer is there's there's no official hotel bar this year at, at AWP, so everyone should go to the Alibi Tiki Lounge to sing karaoke. Okay, you'll be hearing this next Thursday, so it's not going to do you much good, but maybe maybe I'll still be there. Every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news is 
has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. So we are coming to you live from Sugi's gigantic penthouse <laughs> atop the Marriott downtown by the water in Portland, which is very exciting. Sugi, how has your AWP experience been so far? It has been fabulous. I just came directly from a panel on writing social change convened by the amazing Lacey Johnson and dashed over here to talk to you live. You're sitting next to me. It's kind of wild. So this is our first episode that tackles literary magazines, the lifeblood of creative writing, publishing. How have we not? I mean, we are in a sense, we are hosted by a literary magazine, an online one at Literary Hub. How have we not done an episode on this before? I don't know, maybe because we're novelists and don't like submitting stories. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's definitely something most... I really don't submit very much. Do you know? I... Like once every five years or really? so. Yeah. Well, well, we're going to talk about submissions. Um... We're going to talk about waiting and agonizing over whether they're reading us, uh, how, whether we've got their attention, when we can expect to hear back, uh, whether they can tell when we've read them and when we haven't, definitely where to submit, how many journals to submit to at a time, whether to pay submission fees, what to put in the cover letter, and the list goes on. And we're going to give a shout out to our editor, Johnny Diamond, at Literary Hub. So to give you everything you need to know about literary magazines, we're going to do a number of things. In the second half of the show, we'll discuss the writer's side of the equation with Jennifer Baker, as well as her work geared toward publishing minorities as both editor of the anthology Everyday People, The Color of Life, and as creator and host of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. In addition to that, you listeners asked us a bunch of questions about literary magazines on Twitter. So Sugi and I are going to go to this party sponsored by FSG Originals, which is a division of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, my publisher, and the literary magazine Paper Darts. And we are going to ask those questions to the guests there. You'll hear their responses cut in throughout the broadcast, and we'll announce them with the audio cue of applause. And right now, we're happy to introduce our first guest, Bridget Hughes. Bridget is the founder and editor of A Public Space, and she previously edited the iconic Paris Review. She is the recipient of the Penn Nora Majid Award for Editing, has curated a literary series at BAM, and teaches at Columbia University. And she's our friend! Yay! <laughs> Yay! Oh. Well, she had, with a mission to seek out, overlook, and unclassifiable work and to publish beyond established confines, a public space is the inter- independent, nonprofit publisher of an eponymous write, uh, award-winning literary, arts, and culture magazine and APS books. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry not to be there in person, but um, it's great to be talking with both Don't of you. say that. We're going to tell everyone that you were here. <laughs> oh, we've been we're waiting not, about we're it. We're not so unscrupulous, are we? <laughs> Um, so, Bridget, you started off as an intern at the Paris Review, and you came to be the de facto editor for three years, and eventually founder and editor of a public space. So, this isn't an overnight journey, obviously. What what got you into editing in the first place? Were you a writer before? Or was editing and publishing something you always wanted to do? Um, I don't think when I was first starting out that I quite understood what editing and publishing meant in terms of a career. I think, like many people at AWP who are standing behind those tables at the book fair. Um, I studied English literature in college. And when I graduated, I had met Richard Howard um, briefly through a poetry program and sent him a note. At the time, he was the poetry editor of the Paris Review. And uh, it was through him that I ended up uh, at an internship at the magazine. And uh, enjoyed the work in the magazine and um, 
ended up with an editorial position opened up stayed on at that at the magazine and it sort of turned out without quite uh knowing that that was going to be my career kind of landing in the perfect place did you like work on any like publications when you're in like high school or college i worked on my high school literary magazine and See? i went it matters to- <laughs> kids <laughs> Um, and I went to school in Chicago at Northwestern, where the extraordinary magazine Triquarterly is uh, published. So I had a sense of what of what they were, um, but the Paris Review was the first real magazine that I worked at. So a public space is one of the most prominent literary journals now, and a lot of the other ones are older. And you know, you started it from scratch. Can you talk about the decision to do that and? how you began, how you got the idea? Sure. I think uh, we started the magazine. We published the first issue in April of 2006. We actually launched it at the AWP conference, which was in Austin that year, if I remember correctly. And I started it with a group of editors I had worked with at the Paris Review and with uh, a couple of writers who I had published there and who were just starting out in their careers, and we felt that maybe there was a place for um, for a new magazine. Um, it was kind of an interesting time in publishing. There was a lot of talk about the value of fiction, and if um, in order to understand the world, one needed to read nonfiction, um, and that maybe fiction wasn't quite as relevant anymore. And that was an argument that I think that we disagreed with and that we thought maybe the magazine was a way to, to think about that question and to push back against it a little bit. Were, were there ever times when you thought this is, I, by the way, I want to mention that I know that at least one of those writers was Elizabeth Gaffney, who is the person who introduced me to you. Yes. So I just wanted to say hi to Elizabeth. The wonderful Elizabeth Gaffney and Ian Lee was one yeah. of the other writers who I know is a good and friend of Suki's. Yes. Um, so we had kind of a lucky group of people at the very beginning. Was there a moment when you thought, we're not going to make it? Um, no. Really? All right. That's good. <laughs> um, we had sort of a, one of the founders of, of the magazine, when we used to send letters back and forth, we always signed off, uh, proceed confidently and with joy. <laughs> and oh, so we I always kept that. that in mind, um, even sort of through the, the ups and downs of the small independent publishing world. Well, I am holding in my hand number 27, uh, the edition of, of the new edition of A Public Space. And I wondered if maybe you could read to us from it a little bit, and, and then we could talk about how you make the editorial choices to put a single issue of the magazine together. Sure. So I thought I would read the opening page of a story by one of our fellows, Bruna Dantas Lobato, and the story is called Diversions, and she is a writer from Brazil. Diversions. One. My mother called me via Skype from our apartment on the outskirts of Natal. She told me it was the warmest day of the year so far, that she planned to go swimming in the ocean later in the afternoon. She showed me the familiar view from the 12th floor, satellite dishes on every roof. Then I showed her my apartment in Boston, my room and the view of the backyard through my window. She liked all the pine trees. She asked me about the snow, the storms, the sparse clouds. It's all white, I said. This is the whitest place I've ever seen. Things are and aren't the same without you here, she suddenly said. I lit another candle for your grandmother this morning. Your aunt, J- 
Nisha Naina got a part-time job as a subject for lab tests. Cousin Marlena is almost in her 10th month of pregnancy. Two, tell me about your life there. How's college? I told her I went sightseeing the other day. Only I actually said that I saw some sights because the word sightseeing doesn't exist in Portuguese. Her video froze and it moved again. She nodded. And how are you doing? Okay, I said. You spoke English, she said. I asked, what? Okay is English. We say that in our language too. You're right, you're funny. She smiled and shifted in her seat. A blue vase appeared on the screen, hovering above her shoulder. What else, she asked. What else what? What you've been up to, I want to know. There isn't much to tell, I said. Tell me anyway. Soothe this old heart. Three. I told her I've made some friends. They're nice people, studious, driven, a little self-important. Like you, she asked, then <laughs> smiled again. Exactly, I said. Too much like me. They're young travelers who never get to go home. Always angry and lonely is what I didn't tell her because I thought it would only make her sad. Four. Her internet connection was slow and her face was stuck again, mid-sentence. Let me update you on the soap opera, her voice said. Helena fell in love with her boss. She said, maybe one day you'll get a job writing soap operas for Rede Globo. If you wrote for Globo, the entire family could watch your work. The video unfroze and there she was again, unimpeded, holding the newspaper. Have you been reading our paper lately, she asked. I shook my head. She related a series of tragedies. An airplane from Malaysia disappeared in the air. A French ad aircraft fell. A private jet crashed into a, into a mall. A girl was kidnapped. A man lost custody of his son, then shot the child, then shot himself. My mother put the newspaper down and rubbed her eyes. She said, look at this mayhem. I said, I'm so sorry. Did you hear about the airplane that vanished, she asked. Yes, I heard. Thank you so much. What a great selection. What a great, funny, little, sad, little bit of dialogue. And I wonder, can you tell us tell us about the fellowship program and about how you choose work for the magazine? Sure. So the, this is the sixth year of the fellowship program. And Bruno was one of three fellows who were selected from an open application that we have annually. We get uh, a little over a thousand applications and we are seeking out writers who are just starting out um, and where we feel that kind of the intensive six month editorial fellowship um, might be something that uh, that they're sort of at a, at a moment in their careers where they might benefit from that kind of conversation. Um, so along with Bruno, we had a writer named Latoya Watkins, who has a beautiful story um, and an essay by a writer named Deborah Taffa. Um, who's a member of the human nation. So we work with them over the course of a number of months, and then we bring them to New York for a reading, um, pair them with one of, a, one of the writers, more established writers we've published in the magazine for kind of an editorial conversation. Um, and the idea for the fellowship just came out of what has been sort of a longstanding commitment of the magazines to seek out writers 
who are just starting out. So we published the first stories of writers like Leslie Jameson and Jasmine Ward, Nam Lee, uh, more recently a writer, um, Sarah Micah, and Jamel Brinkley, who, of course, earlier this year was a finalist for the National Book Award for his debut collection, A Lucky Man. So I'm holding, I'm looking at this uh, um, new issue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's such an incredibly wide range of writers in it. I mean, you have a, uh, uh, I'm going to maybe mess this name up because I have only read it, but Ahmed, Ahmad Faris Shidiak. Yes. Yeah. He's a 19th century writer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you've also, you know, uh, Lee Carpenter is in here. Um, there's a there's a Greek writer whose story at, toward, is toward the end of the book that I thought was really fantastic. Um, I'm missing yeah. oh, Nanos. Uh, Nano Valeriti. Isn't yes. that fabulous? Yeah. And then there's this wonderful there are wonderful photographs in here. Um, there's uh, there's photographs of some architecture. There's there's a there's a there's um, <laughs> uh, mond. Uh, what is, no no it's like collages of rooms. Um, from the 19th century, you know. Yes, the scrapbooks. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, and yet, so I don't. I want readers to get a sense of like how dense. I'm not dense, but how wide ranging a single issue of your magazine is. And I wonder how you decide how the things fit together. Like, what is your editorial process like? Well, first I'll just say that I think one of the great joys of a magazine is you're collecting all of these voices and to be able to stretch in as many different directions um, in terms of generations and languages and continents and um, types of material um, is sort of for me one of the kind of the essence of of putting a magazine together Um, so we start out with with an idea something that um, either a piece that we found sparks an idea or there's something that we've been thinking about in conversation. Um, and in this case, we were just thinking about language and that's a very abstract idea. Um, but then we go around and we have a group of a very small staff, but then we have quite a large and committed group of contributing editors and they are always sort of keeping an eye out and suggesting ideas. And so we collect just a whole group of of pieces um and so they'll like email you and say like hey maybe this would be right or i have an yeah, idea I, here or I've yeah been, you know, looking for a place thought of for this, this. Okay. yeah um and sometimes it's just a conversation and they aren't specifically suggesting a piece but in the course of the conversation they'll mention something that seems kind of exciting that was how the scrapbook piece came about one of our contributing editors was doing a fellowship or had a residency at this museum and was telling me about these scrapbooks that she had come across um, and it just seemed like a good fit for the issue that we were putting together and then we just sort of uh, go through the whole list and start kind of piecing things together and uh, come up with what feels like a rough shape for the issue and then go out and kind of try to fill in the holes from there. All right, more party questions. Uh, We're here with Danielle Evans. We're going to ask her a question from listener uh, Kayla or Kyla McCullough. How do you know when your work is ready to send out to a magazine? Um, 
I think when you reach the point when you can answer your own questions about what the project is and you don't have any obvious sense of what to do next, I'm a terrible compartmentalizer, but my one thing that I'm good at compartmentalizing is like your writing life is different than your career. So you don't have to send something out and then wait for it to come back. You can send it out and if you have a eureka moment like a week later, which often happens because you send it out and suddenly the thing that wasn't clear to you becomes clear, it's okay, you can still fix it. Like no editor is going to sort of laugh at you and cross your name off a list forever because you sent them a story that you wrote a better draft of later. So I think if it feels if it feels ready, if you feel like you've spent time with it, you've sat with it, you've asked the questions of sort of what the project of the thing is and feel like you've answered them, it's okay to let it go because it's not the last time you'll have a chance to send it out. It's not the last time you'll have a chance to work on it. And you can recognize that sort of the public part of your writing life and the career part of your writing life is a separate project than the writing part of your writing life. That is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Like some other journals, also, you, you know, you started a press, you're publishing books in addition to the regular magazine, and, and you mentioned Jamel Brinkley, um, and you've partnered with Grey Wolf to publish books from past, past contributors. So Grey Wolf and, and APS published Jamel and started APS Books, the first title of which, Come See and Prosperous Voyage by Betty Howland, is coming out on May 7th. And the book, a collection of stories, has already gotten a starred review from Kirkus. How did you decide that that was an avenue you wanted to pursue and what that can you what has that process been like? It, it's it's uh, it's been wonderful. So we started um, the Betty Howland project that started with just by chance coming across a book of hers in a used bookstore. And it was hers was not a name that I had heard before. I remember and, when that issue came out when you published yeah. her in the magazine. Yeah. Um, and it was just one of those moments where you're sort of struck by, by the writing. You open a book and, you, you know, the first random sentence that you read um, grabs you and went home, you know, tried to track her down, see what else she may have published and could find very little uh, online about her. And one of those just situations where the less you could find, the more determined you became to... Um, to find her. So it took a couple of months, but we eventually connected with her son, who was a, is a f- professor of philosophy in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he mentioned that he knew his mother had a safety deposit box and he knew that she had some writing there and he would go down to the bank the next day and see what was there and let us know. And he emailed the next day and said, you know, he found essays and some stories and would we be interested in seeing them and oh also there were this collection of postcards and letters from a 40-year friendship with Saul Bellow would we like to see those and we said oh yes I think we I think we might was he like surprised Uh, to hear from you or or was he like I've been waiting for this call no I mean I I think (laughs) it was not a call he'd been waiting for um and it just started this wonderful, this wonderful project. So, we did a portfolio in the magazine with the letters and some of her, some of her work, and then tried to kind of piece the story of her career together. And eventually, found ourselves with a collection of stories and novellas that she'd written over a number of years. She'd published three books in the late seventies and early eighties, and then in 1984, won a MacArthur Genius Fellowship and never published a book after that, though she did continue writing. It felt like a book that we wanted to see out in the world, and it felt like a project that 
that we wanted to do and sort of a reason to start to start the book division. How do you edit a writer who isn't there to work with you? Yeah, I mean, fascinating. Well, so she has these letters, you know, we had Bellow's letters to her and then we ended up finding a number of her letters to him and several of her interviews. So you sort of get a sense of who she was and how she thought about her work and these long detailed letters that she wrote to one of her um, book editors. Um, so we tried to get a sense of, of what she would have wanted and the spirit of her work. And, um, and I hope managed to put together a collection that, that, that she would be happy with. So we put out a call on Twitter today for questions for this episode. And the one thing that came back is like, would somebody please explain what really happens when I send my, my manuscript into a magazine? <laughs> what do they do? Will you tell us? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, we have a small group of readers who've been with the magazine for, um, in some cases, a number of years. And they are going through and evaluating every submission that comes in to the magazine. And over the course of the year through this online system, that's about 10,000 manuscripts. Um, oh! So it's a lot of reading. Uh, we have kind of a questionnaire and certain questions that we ask the readers to keep in mind when they're looking at a submission. And wait, wait. Did, can you tell us what those are or is that proprietary uh, secret sauce? Uh, it's a little bit of secret sauce. Okay. No, we, I mean, we ask them to think about uh, originality and voice. We ask for a favorite sentence um, just because I find that sometimes that helps to clarify what you're drawn to in the work. And we often... Um, we try to emphasize that we aren't looking for the perfect story. We're looking for a piece of writing that feels alive, even if it might have some rough edges or feel not quite, uh, not quite finished. So I guess they want to know, is it ridiculous for them to just send you stories? Is it still like a thing to do? Are you already decided from hearing from the editors that you do get suggestions from or do stories that just get mailed in sometimes make it into the magazine? Still. Stories that get sent in very much make it into the magazine. And I mean, part of the reason for the fellowship program was to emphasize that we are very much looking for writers who are just starting out, who haven't published. Um, and that formalizing that through this fellowship program was maybe a way to encourage some writers who might otherwise be reluctant to submit to the magazine. Um, but no, I think I think almost any literary magazine editor would tell would tell you that one of the great pleasures of of editing a magazine is to find to find a writer you haven't you haven't encountered before. <laughs> Wayne Miller, who is the editor-in-chief, is that right? Managing that? editor and editor, yeah. Managing editor and editor of uh, Copper Nickel. So we have a question from Luke Wortley, one of our listeners. He wants to know, how much work is solicited and bypasses the submission queue, even if it's ultimately not accepted by editors? What percent of work gets solicited at magazines that pay? Huh. Um, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but... Um, you then? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say, okay, yes, yeah, so we get um, we get about 16,000 poems a year that come in and about 4,000 stories. And I would say that maybe, maybe 200 poems and 
20 stories bypass the 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 first stage but a lot of those end up getting rejected at the second stage really? yeah yeah that's just we we recognize a name we know that we like this person's work we know that they publish good work and we pass it forward to look at at the next editorial stage and a lot of that gets weeded out at that point <laughs> This is a very optimistic conversation, and <laughs> since we're discussing Larry what the hell, we got to start over again. You know, we've got these. We will be these people writing it on Twitter. Like, is it is it uh, is it foolish for me to send in my story? No, it's not. And since we're discussing literary magazines, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on Tin House, which after twenty yeah. years of publishing some of the best national and international writing, they're closing up shop with the, with the journal. And the June issue this year will be the final issue, but they're going to continue to publish books and fund. Uh, Tin House's annual workshops. So do you think that this is something that we're moving towards, the funding for literary journals moving towards publishing books, that the print journal will go by the wayside? You mentioned tri-quarterly before. Tri-quarterly, mm-hmm. I think, is, is only online. You know, what what should we what what should we worry about and what can we be optimistic about? Uh, well, I, I will say, I mean, Tin House, I think, has had an extraordinary impact on the literary community. Um, I was looking at, uh, we have a copy of the second issue in the office, and I was looking at it today and realizing that that's where I first encountered Victor Laval's work, and they've supported writers like Joanne Beard and um, all of these, you know, voices that I think I first came across in, in, in the pages of that magazine. Um I think the literary magazine world is never static. It is ever evolving. And for every magazine that, um, you know, decides to, to sort of end uh, as Tin House is, is ending, there's, there's, you know, another one starting up. There's a magazine like Sewanee Review or Bennington Review sort of coming back. Um, so I think it's kind of an extraordinary time for literary magazines. The Whiting Foundation last year launched a new, very generous prize to support literary magazines, both print journals and online journals that I think will have a huge impact. And um, so I think it's kind of a golden moment in a lot of ways. So another thing that came up quite a bit, and I notice one of the things I noticed in the back of uh, APS is that you list mm-hmm. your sponsors, right? So you yes. do fundraising. I know that that's part of what you do to keep the mm-hmm. magazine alive. And and, and um, I don't know what your policy is on uh, contests, but uh, a lot of magazines run contests with fees. And we had a lot of listeners who wrote in mm-hmm. about asking about fees. One of the reasons that people do that is to fund the magazines, basically, right? Sure. Do you guys, um, how, what's your relationship to fees and contests and that sort of stuff? We don't charge a fee. Um, oh, okay. So now you can comment without anyone getting angry at you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, it, it's certainly a conversation we have had. There is time uh, involved in, in reading those submissions. There you know, are the expenses of, we get 95% of our submissions online now, and we print a number of those submissions out to read them. Um, so there are all sorts of expenses associated with, with reading and evaluating and publishing that work. So I understand the reason and the need for fees. Um, it's not something that we, that we, that we do at the magazine. So how long does it take you to get someone's story back to them with a, how long does it take you to respond? We aim for three months, but we do not always meet that three month goal. Um, I would say three to six months is probably a realistic time frame. Okay. So 
as many of our listeners have been asking these these um, questions themselves about sending in sending in their work, what are the biggest no nos for you as an editor? What are you what are you sick and tired of seeing, and what what turns you off? Remember when Tony Tulatimuti told me told us that he got an application for MFA that had glitter in it, and when he opened it, it got glitter all over his computer. I do remember that. Has that, ever, <laughs> has that ever happened to you, Bridget? That's never happened to us. Those are the things you miss out on now that you get submissions online. Um, I guess I would say, you know, you like to feel that the person made a, you know, spent some time thinking about what magazines they wanted to submit their work to, and selected a public space because they felt it would be a good fit for their work. Um, Do they submit with a cover letter to you? Is that is that someplace where somebody would sort of identify and make it clear that they've been reading the magazine? They do submit with a cover letter. It's not required, but most people will submit a cover letter. Some people will mention the magazine. Um, you have a sense when they do that if they've really read the, read the magazine and there really is a piece that felt important to them and um, you know, we look at the we look at the cover letters because they come in separately from the manuscript. We look at the cover letters after we read the, the submission. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Do you care if they've been published somewhere else? I mean, does that help? You know, if I can say, "Look, well, I had a story." You know, it neither helps nor nor hurts. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I often say when Egan Lee submitted her first story when I was at the Paris Review, I, I believe the cover, led, cover letter said, you know, um, thank you for considering the story. If accepted, it would be my first publication. <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was it. And that was enough. Honesty is um, always nice. Yeah. So if it, if it would be a first publication, that's always nice to know. <laughs> Um, I'm here with Eileen Pollock, a writer based in New York City, who is on the first season of Fiction on Fiction. And I have a question from our listener, Alexis Melson, who writes, I'm curious about when to submit a cover letter and what to include in that cover letter when I'm submitting my work to a literary journal. Uh, a question that takes me back to my embarrassing youth when I first started submitting to journals and wrote very, very lengthy letters to make up for the fact that I had no, uh, nothing to say. I had published nothing, so there was no reason these people should publish me, so I just wrote endlessly irrelevant things. And someone who was subletting my apartment for the summer, this was at Iowa, um, found one of my cover letters and kindly told me to never, never do that again. And so as I tell my students, um, if you've never published anything, the I think the classiest, uh, most useful thing to say in your cover letter is, this would be my first publication. So I'm trying to imagine you... Because you read some of these, you, you read these, right? Uh, I do read them. Mm -hmm. uh, so where where's your favorite place to read? See, like I I just got a new couch at my house, and I read on the couch. It's awesome. It's next to the fireplace, which I finally figured out how oh. to turn on, and um, that's where I read. You know, like if I'm going to do reading, where do you like to read? Uh, I like to read on the sofa at home. I like to read uh, at the magazine. We the office is in the first floor of a carriage house, especially in the nice weather, we have the big doors open. Um, so that can be kind of a lovely place to read. And there are a number of uh, little cafes in the neighborhood. And it's always nice to take a stack of manuscripts and 
um, and go sit in the corner and read there. That sounds very cozy. Yeah. I I'm going to go back for a second to you mentioned um, that it's helpful to know if someone had a piece that they're particularly proud of in an, in another magazine. And then we know that you you're getting, you know, north of 10,000 submissions or something. And so if someone mentions a piece in another magazine, do you do you do you go and look it up or do do you they link to it or because you're sitting in this cafe with your stack of, of 10,000 manuscripts right. and you take you you take that extra step and look at it sometimes yeah sometimes if you're curious about the writer's work and you want to read a little bit more you know it's easy enough to go online and and see what else you can find sure i've done that this is so great (laughs) i know that there are so many of our listeners are so this is like the perfect thing bridget thank you for giving us all this stuff we have like basically one more question for you which is um what kind of things are you wishing that you see saw more of in the submissions that you get? The things that make you really excited when you see writers doing them? I'm just wishing to be surprised. And that means I don't really know what I'm looking for, because if I did, um, I wouldn't be surprised when I found it. Yeah, I remember I was the I was the fiction editor of the Michigan Quarterly Review for a year. And this fantastic story came in the slush pile and an intern found it. And then we all took turns standing in a ring in the basement of this yeah. building at the University of Michigan, reading the story aloud to each other. And then I wrote to the to the writer Rachel Rachel May, and the story was called B and Grim. And I, I made some very small suggestions for edits, and um, and she said, you know, this doesn't really go with what I want. And I was sort of like, I love your story so much. I think everything that you have done is perfectly correct, and you should ignore everything that I say because we just love the story so so much. Um, and I mean, I. Yeah, I mean, it was just such a joy, um, that that moment of discovery. Yeah, I mean, you you know when you're, you know, you're sitting there and you're going through a stack of manuscripts and then you just come across something and it just feels different. Um, it does. I, you know? I was just reading, I read for a, a, a literary award that you got me started reading for, by the way. Ah, uh, yes. And then oh, abandoned yes. me there. Um, but, uh, no, I like being there. I'm very happy. But what I notice about it is, is, um, one thing that I notice is that the books that work are the ones that do not, I feel like many times writers, particularly beginning writers, emerging writers, they, they believe that the raider has a lot more patience and is a lot more interested in their characters and presumes a kind of interest on the reader's behalf. And the, the manuscripts that are, that are successful to me are the ones that don't presume that, that think, you're busy. I'm going to tell you this story right now, and here's why you need to read it. That's what mm-hmm. I feel like. That a lot of times they feel like they, they wander, particularly reading novels, they wander at the beginning, messing around, assuming that you're going to be curious without really starting the story. And, and to me, that's something that's a, easy, to, easy to note. Yeah. But you're looking at books. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are short story collections, too. When you're looking at a a single story. Yeah. But, I mean, that's what keeps it interesting. What you're looking for in this story that you're reading is going to be entirely different than what you're looking for in the the next submission that comes in. Well, um, I will say I, I do think that in addition to having some of the best content that I read in literary journals, a public space is also one of the most beautiful um, of the magazines that I read. And I think it's such a, it's such a gorgeous piece of work every time. And I just want to encourage our listeners to go and find, uh, issue 27, which is available now. And Bridget, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Uh, thank you. And happy AWP. 
I just want to say the one other way that literary magazines stay in business is that people get subscriptions to them. Uh, yes. So that you should subscribe to her magazine. Yes, or ask your local library, your, your university library, your local bookstore to carry it. Wonderful. There are all sorts of ways to support the literary magazines that matter to you. So great to talk to you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Take okay, care. Bye. This week's episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by the Augsburg MFA program. The words that affect us the most are written in solitude, but they come alive in community. Expand your literary citizenship and refine your writing with the low residency MFA in creative writing by Augsburg University. Apply now at augsburg.edu slash MFA. Hi, it's Suki Ganeshan Anthon from FNF. I'm so thrilled to be here with Lydia Kiesling, um, and we're at the FSG Originals Party, and she's generously agreed to answer a question from one of our listeners, Chloe Syme, who asks, how soon is too soon to announce that you have a work forthcoming in a journal? A week after acceptance? A month? Is it bad to post your acceptance on social media? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask this because I have uh, not published in many journals. My feeling, though, as a paranoid person, is that you can't trust until the day that it comes out, so I would never advertise something until it is available to be read. But you are an editor at uh, Millions, right? So what, were you happy when people would post about stuff that you'd accepted and then publish for them? No, uh, not... <laughs> Well, it's not that I was unhappy, but it just, sometimes people will be like, it's coming out next week, but sometimes, like, schedules change, and uh, I don't know. I just think, based on my experience of the tenuousness behind the scenes, I'm always, we'd always, you know, you want to make sure the... um, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> so you want it to be in print or out on the magazine and then talk about it. But if they if they wait until then, it's okay? It's not about what's okay. I'm just talking for myself. Like, I would be super paranoid and assume if I said that I had a piece coming out somewhere that it would immediately be killed and then it would never come out. <laughs> that literary journal that had accepted it would burst into flame? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> My strong feeling is that you should not announce that a piece of yours is forthcoming in a magazine until three weeks after it has appeared in print. (laughs) That's Dan Coyce, who's just going to be commenting from now on on the podcast. I loved it! Joining us now is Jennifer Baker. She was the recipient of a 2017 NYSCA NYFA Artist Fellowship and a 2017 Queens Council on the Arts New Work Grant, as well as the QCA Junior Board Artistic Excellence Award in nonfiction literature for her WIP essay collection. Her essay, What We Aren't, was also listed as a notable essay in Best American Essays 2018. Thank you for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. How are y'all? We're good. We're here in the uh, gigantic literary hub uh, penthouse where we've been recording all the podcasts here <laughs> in downtown Portland, where we rented out the top floor of an unnamed Marriott. 
<laughs> Those are high tech. Oh, that's nice. You can tell everybody. We're not going to answer. We're not allowed to Instagram it. We have to just rely no. on word of mouth about how good it is. It's, no, it's fancy. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's such a secret. I think the trapeze is a nice. <laughs> I prefer the trampoline. Yeah. Okay. We'll shoot some pool later. Um, There's a fountain. It's great. <laughs> There's the sand thing. You know, you just put yeah. the. We had to be on the other. We had to be away from the fountain because it's messing up the sound. So I should say this is the this is the very first time that we're recording with all three people in the same place it's and it's crazy i technology like you haven't even seen before let's all hold hands <laughs> we can it would be it's a possibility um so we're so thrilled to have jennifer with us um jennifer you also host the podcast minorities in publishing i wonder can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about your show and then today since this episode is focusing on literary magazines talk to us about your thoughts on how literary magazines are uh, being inclusive of minorities these days? <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> I have many thoughts. Okay. I will truncate. <laughs> so the Minorities in Publishing podcast is about four and a half years old at this point. It started in 2014, August, and me and my then podcast partner at the time, Bev Rivero, just wanted to have discussions with people in the industry because the you know, the online conversation was, you know, hashtag we need diverse books and da 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 da. Even though this conversation had been happening for many, many years, many decades, and it gained fervor thanks to Twitter and social media. But what we noticed as POC publishing professionals was that people weren't really talking about the interior side of publishing. They was looking at the authors and the people who weren't getting the book sales and the book deals. But no, being in the industry for 15 years. If there is no one on the inside, it is very likely you're not going to acquire or right. know how to sell the books by those who are not, who don't look like anyone in the industry. Right. So we said we want to talk to publishing professionals, and that did include authors, illustrators, and whatnot. But we really did want to look into the industry itself to have people understand what it's like. What is what does a literary agent do? What does a publicist do? What does a bookseller do? And what are the hardships they see as marginalized people as well to be able to acquire the books, to sell the books, to find to pay rent, right. to find consumers. And that is all tied together in terms of the entirety of diversity in publishing. I use air quotes a lot. People who listen to my podcast know I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so recently I have Bria Kiera on, and she is in Philly. Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah, Philly, Pennsylvania. That was like, a good episode. Philly? Oh, thank you. And she was great because she reached out and said, I'm trying to do this new literary magazine, and it, I'm having a hard time, and I want to talk about what it's like. And I said, sure. I haven't had anyone who's talked about it that much at all, in all honesty, on the podcast. And she was great because she really was very frank about the hardships that she's been dealing with for her literary magazine. And it's called Daydreamers. I'm glad I remember that. <laughs> it's called Daydreamers. And it's I, I think the newest issue has gone out recently, but the biggest issue is the financial hurdle. Yeah. And I you know, we've seen digital places do massive layoffs this year. Yeah. yeah. Already. And they supposedly have a solid you know, solidified foundation financially to be able to give people a paycheck. And they're doing mass layoffs. So imagine someone from the upstart is not, maybe doesn't have an MBA, doesn't, certainly doesn't come from wealth. Right. Creating something artistic and trying to reach out to all the people in the mass of what we're 
doing and also with all the noise that is happening online. I've worked with literary magazines briefly. I work with Electric Literature, which is technically a literary magazine. Oh yeah, we're definitely kept in. <laughs> and we're all, I don't want to say Electric Literature is struggling because it's doing very well. It's hits its 10th year. We're doing the party, the birthday party, but it is not as competitive in terms of what we can pay people. Right. And that's due mostly to the membership. The membership really sustains electric literature. And also, if you have someone who's of wealth, that can sustain them too. But Tin House had someone who was wealthy, right. sustaining them for 10 years, and now the print edition is gone. Right. So you're seeing it at all ends, even with Tin House, which isn't as representative, is folding in a print capacity, mm-hmm. and then other ones in a digital capacity are kind of sustaining themselves and trudging along, but we can't be competitive financially in terms of how much we pay contributors, and that affects what you get. Yeah. Yeah. That affects well, what you get. Okay, this brings up an interesting push-pull aspect of like how to finance stuff, you know, um, and then how that affects uh, contributors, because we had a, when we tweeted out that we were going to talk to you and to Bridget Hughes, and, and we're going to talk about li- literary um, magazines. We had a, uh, one listener wrote in and said, "Hey, can you ask about fees? Like, because a lot of literary magazines use fees to sustain themselves. I know that that's how they make money, and they're not getting enough funding from the state, even if they're like, you know. I mean, I know that you know, uh, uh, New Letters is the." terrific literary magazine at my school you know like they have a they have a contest and it's important to their funding right even though it is also a hardship for writers to pay for those things so i just wondered if you would talk about that a little bit and it also attributes to contest as well that's what i mean also, yeah contest. you know fees well i know more and more literary magazines are doing the fee the three dollar the and five the submitting fee, fee right there's the submitting, submitting fee and then yeah. there's the contest fee yeah that's right yes yeah you and then distinguish. people are I mean, it's a push-pull because if you get rejected, you're like, I paid $5 to be rejected. What yeah. is that? Whereas yeah. a contest, I think that's more, It you understand that's part of contest with a literary magazine. It kind of right. seems a bit. Well, that's places like Newtown Literary, Yishun Lies, the magazine that she works with, I forget the name at the this moment, Tahoma Review, Tahoma Literary Review. And she had openly said on Facebook about the reactions people give. And it seems to kind of be exacerbated when you ask for fees. But those fees, they're trying to pay. Oftentimes, it's not even the editors who are getting any money. They're trying to pay the readers and the, you know, the printers if they still do it in print. And all the people who work under them, they're mm-hmm. trying to pay them. Yeah. They're trying to pay for their website. They're trying to pay for all these things. And you're all competing for state or city grants. I know Newtown Literary usually regularly gets a New York, a Queens Council grant. Uh And that's also for programming because Newtown Literary was just a literary magazine and now they've become a nonprofit. And they were kind of like the centralized place in Queens, the borough of Queens, to try and get more Queens representation and visibility in the literary world. But they do rely on that kind of tip jar. It's like, would you please, and if you give us a little bit more money, we'll give you concrete feedback on your story. And that's all used to fund a system where a lot of people are working for free or incredibly low pay. And I was on a panel yesterday with Marissa Siegel at The Rumpus, and she was very open about the fact that she's like, I have not been paid in two years (laughs) on The Rumpus. And she said, I work 80 hours a week. I have not been paid. And she said, I cannot sustain this personally. I cannot sustain this. And she has a partner. They have a child. They own a home. And her partner has been the one who's been 
pretty much sustaining them financially. And that doesn't mean Marissa doesn't contribute, but as an earner, and she said, again, she said this openly, which is why I'm saying it, right. is I have not earned money in two years. That's tough, that is, but I don't think but that's uncommon for no, online no. publications. Um, I know that there are, I have students who've started their own online, you know, uh, literary journals, which is the sort of low, you know, the sort of more startup part of this. But I know they're not making any money. Hmm. You know, they're doing it for the, because they love it, I guess. Yeah, I'm yeah. not making money off of my podcast. Yeah. So, um, we have... You mentioned a couple literary magazines there, and, and I was thinking about literary magazines that focus on diversity, both in terms of content and the identity of their editorial staff, which is something that your podcast focuses on. I thought of, you know, Kavi Kanan publishes its anthologies. There's Callaloo, there's the Asian American Literary Review, there's the Yellow Medicine Review, which focuses on indigenous writers. We'd love to have our listeners write to us on Twitter with their recommendations for journals like that, um, but I wondered if you had other recommendations or talk about places you like to submit to. Black Fox Literary Review is run by a black woman. I mean, she tries to get as many people as possible so she doesn't just focus on people of color, but right. it is run by a woman of color and it's been up for five or so years. And Black Fox Literary Review is actually here. It's run by uh, Raquel Henry. Mm. And they're here at AWP. And that's what I mean here okay. <laughs> in terms of that. And Bria Chiara's, I know that there are more, and I know more about the programs, because so many more people are creating programs, because yeah. I think they recognize having a print product as something they can't do consistently, whereas right. if you do teaching, right. you can, so the Waterhole Project, I think they have done an anthology as well, but they really sustain themselves on workshops, okay. and focus on workshops for poets of color. And then they do an anthology, like Kaveh Kaunam, of like, oh, here are the poets of color who have come through our workshop. And things like that. And that's run by Candace. And I forget her surname at the moment, but it's definitely the watering hole. Okay. Yeah. We'll put links to all of these. Yeah. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, you're also the editor of an anthology yourself, uh, the editor of Everyday People. The, and since we're here in person, I can say what a beautiful book it is. Um, <laughs> I'm showing it to no one. I can see this beautiful. <laughs> I can see its beautiful cover, which we will also we'll put a link to this in our show notes. Um, and it's called Everyday People, The Color of Life, a short story anthology. And the title of which you said is, uh, quote, not meant to focus solely on the racial composition of the writers or characters, but to showcase the larger story and relationships depicted, as well as the landscape, be it in New York City, Maine, Alabama, Great Britain, South Korea, Ghana, or Sri Lanka. Can you tell us more about that project and editing it and curating it and, and what it has meant for you? It was a lot of work. <laughs> it was a lot of work. I kind of became a therapist of other people who started doing <laughs> anthologies. And they said, so what was this like? I will never do an anthology again. Uh, but that's kind of glib in a lot of ways of saying the emotional toll. <laughs> but working with everyone who's in the anthology was phenomenal. Everyone who's in it, I love, I adore. They were the best people to work with. Hasi, Jason Reynolds, Mitch Jackson, Korsha, Nana Bruhaman, Brandon Taylor, uh, Dennis, and everybody. They were just amazing to work with. And it just kind of solidified the idea of you can have work that isn't simply about trauma of marginalization and really focus on the universality of stories, which kind of sounds cliche 
and that's what I said 85 times when I was talking. But uh-huh. I said, no, this is really what it's about. It's not about someone struggling with being gay or struggling with being black or struggling with being native. It is about a specific story with specific characters and this is what's happening. And originally, uh, my friend Brooke Stevenson passed away and this was his project and he passed away very, very suddenly. And this had already been contracted with Atria Simon & Schuster. And so several months after the fact, the editor who worked at Simon & Schuster at the time asked me if I would be interested. It was a big project because I edited it myself, but it was also a very worthwhile project. But it's also, there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes that I've talked about and don't talk about because I think people think when you get a big five, you're, you're golden. Oh, you're with the big five, that's amazing. So, okay. That's cute you think that. (laughs) In the end, I'm very proud of the final product. It's a great book, and everyone who's in it is very happy. Well, we wondered if you could uh, read something for us. Sure. I'm going to read just the first page and a half of Alexander Chi's Mine. A very good friend of the show who's been on on our show twice. And it was a classmate of mine. Really? Yeah. What? At Iowa? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was visiting my mom in the southern main town she lives in now, Sacco, three towns over from where I grew up. We had gone to my father's grave, cleaned it, and had our version of the traditional Korean offering there, enduring the stares of the other visitors, and then she sent me on an errand to the local Hannaford grocery store to pick up a few things for dinner, including kimchi, and we disagreed about whether I could buy kimchi there. It's not the same state you remember, she said, when she insisted. Now, as I stood in line for the checkout, holding the kimchi in my hand, knowing she had won, and amazed at being able to buy kimchi in this place I'd left behind so long ago, I noticed the man who came to stand behind me. He looked familiar, though he was like all the kids I'd gone to school with, sunburned, blonde, confident, or, if not confident, still capable of a good bluff. Things hadn't turned out quite the way he'd wanted, that was clear. He was like a slightly hurt version of who he used to be, but it was also clear he still believed things would go his way eventually. I suppose I was the same, and that one way we were the closest we'd ever be to being like each other. And then I understood that I actually did know him. He was from my high school, had been arrested for being a coke dealer, though I didn't know if he'd done time. I knew his sister better. She'd pose for her senior yearbook photo with her baby, which was more of a scandal for some reason than his arrest, or her actual pregnancy, as if the yearbook were something sacred you could spoil. I figured, let's just begin what happens next, and asked, how's your sister? He blinked. You knew my sister? Yeah, I said, I know your sister. It sounded a little dirtier than I'd meant, and truth be told, it wasn't entirely innocent. His sister and I were not the most likely of friends at our high school, but we really had been friends and had even drunkenly hooked up exactly once. It was nothing I was prepared to tell her brother about, but it meant a lot to me. She was the one woman I'd ever had sex with before admitting to her, and then eventually to the rest of the world, that I was gay. At the time, his sister Katie was well-liked, if not quite popular. She was never trying to get the approval of anyone. She seemed like a sweet, baby-faced blonde who still wore her brother's boy jeans to school under pink knitted ponchos, jeans he'd long outgrown. But then she'd turn every so often and her eyes let off with coolness, like she was older than most of us somehow. Even in that poncho, 
Do you know how hard it is to be cool in a pink poncho? <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, your podcast, uh, this anthology, and your work aside from that has really focused on a push for louder minority voices in literature. Um, and as a matter of fact, you work for We Need More Diverse Books, a nonprofit whose goal is exactly that. And we've had uh, Danielle Clayton on the show as well. Uh-huh. Um, we're interested in talking about what literary magazines do to help minority writers in pursuit of getting published, but I'm assuming that, in part, you started these projects because they weren't doing enough things, you know? So maybe you could talk about the joys and sorrows of starting your own projects that sort of fulfilled a niche, a place, not a niche, you know, a place that you thought needed filling. Well, it was more interesting to find that people didn't know who was out there, and I think in retrospect that's the reason that you create these things you create create these entities these places these podcasts but then when you actually realize people didn't know said oh my god we have so much work to do (laughs) at the end of the day I think that's similar with literary magazines is you're hoping that people recognize the talent Mm -hmm. that's out there the work that's being done and that's the hardship when you're just starting yeah because you may not know how, you may not have had a plan, you had an idea. And then the idea snowballs into something great or it kind of crashes and burns due to stress, due to lack of money, due to lack of access, which is the biggest thing. Uh-huh. And so this is why it's also important when the places that have access are representative. Because if you can get into those places, it really opens doors. <laughs> I'm here at AWP where Whitney has taken my wine. We're not at AWP, you're at a party. It's an offsite party. It's part of AWP. Okay, I'm at an offsite party where Whitney has taken my wine. <laughs> to focus on the point, we're at the FSG Originals party. Don't drink that. <laughs> and I'm here with Aro Kwan, uh, author of The Incendiaries and podcast friend of ours, whom we love very much. And we have a question for you about literary journals. We would love to hear you talk about excerpting from a longer work. Um, how do you know if you can, you're working on a novel, you're alone in your basement, your garret, your cave, what have you, and you're like, you know, I want to send out chapter one or chapter four. Can I do that? Is that okay? How do you decide? I excerpted a couple of pieces from my novel before it sold. So when it was very much a novel in progress, um, and then afterwards, when the book came out, we excerpted one piece, I believe, from it. Um, I think more than anything else, what helps is seeing how other, if you're thinking about excerpting from a longer book, um, looking at how other people have accepted their work. And so The New Yorker is an obvious example, but a lot of publication, in a lot of publications, people do excerpt pieces from their novels and their memoirs and their um and you can just start you can start seeing how people piece things together sometimes it's not necessarily the first chapter it's not necessarily the last chapter you can just sort of like you can mix things together you can pull things out what can these established literary magazines do to make it clear that they're a welcoming place to emerging writers and writers of color And that's the rub, right? (laughs) Right. Because if you have an all-white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied masthead, that's already reflective of what you're willing to invest in. Uh And that's an issue. And if you only publish the really high-profile people of color, 
that's also that shows oh okay well when someone ascends to this level that's when you pay attention rather than when paying attention to who I am as or what the content of my work is or what people are doing so if everyone's looking at Iowa and like okay Iowa does have a more representative you know class class base but it is still from those I know very insular and very segregated and so are they going to state schools are they going to places like CUNY or SUNY or Rutgers or are they really just looking at the Harvards, the Columbias, oh, the, that's interesting. You know, the NYUs, yeah. the Iowas? You mean the in USC. terms of what writers they're accepting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's also good. what writers they're looking hey, I'm, at. Hey, I'm excited for them to, <laughs> I went to Iowa, but I have students who are not, you know, they're going to UMKC and I want publishers to think about an urban university like yes. that, you know, as a place that write, good writers can come from because they do. Yes. You yeah. Know? Yes. And also pay readers because these things where we're talking about the finances, I was talking to an editor at Tin House and they said, well, readers don't get paid. And so they you mean readers of manuscripts, readers, yes, yeah, readers okay. for the submission. So you know that's the first line of defense is the readers before it gets to the editor, unless you know the editor and can get access to the editor. So that comes back to access. Who has the time to be able to do work for free? So then, when you point out this sort of stuff, what kinds of resistance do you come up against? I think it's just more. Well, we're trying. It's a lot of I want to be given credit for what I've been doing, which is. We have given more scholarships to people of color for our workshops, or we have had three people of color in our last issue, and we did this, but it's consistently about outreach on both ends. So I can know about you, but if you don't know about me, I don't expect literary magazines to come to me. So I have to act, find the access to them. So how do I access them? Places like Duotrope, Google is your friend, Writer's Digest, Poets and Writers Database. There are hundreds of databases. So that's one thing for the writer to do. But also on the end of the mastheads and those on those mastheads, what are they doing in terms of finding the readers to help them diversify? Are they reaching out to advocates in this industry? Are they following them on Twitter and social media mm -hmm. and looking at who they're doing rather than asking them to do the work for them and saying, well, hey, Jen, who do you know that I should reach out to? I'm like, you know what, I can give you a laundry list, but this is work on my part. And it's work to benefit you. And maybe it's work to benefit other people, and I don't want to kind of hold off or hold any information in that sense, but you're asking me to do work for you, rather than <laughs> actually say, okay, well, who does Jen follow, or who does Jen talk about, or right. who is Jen, you know, who is Jen publicized, or da-da-da-da-da-da-da, or what is her Goodreads list? You know, my Goodreads list is very obvious, and it's a it's a hole, you know, it's a black, it ends up being a black hole because you're constantly digging, digging, digging. And that's how I found people. That's how I found people for the anthology. It wasn't, who are the biggest names I can get on right. this anthology? It was, whose writing do I like and who have I worked with? And that's how I've learned more as an able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual woman is, let me follow the LGBTQ organizations. Let me follow the writers and the people creating blogs like Black Girl Dangerous, which focuses on black and brown, transgender, non-binary, queer voices. I need to follow this and read their stuff and recognize that this is what they're saying and maybe their voices are amazing and it aligns with my subjectivity as well in terms of an editorial process. That's work I did. That was 
hours and hours of work and people don't want to put in the work. They want to get credit for the work that they've done that's on a Band-Aid level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, I did this in vis- and you can visibly see that I did this. Hence, you know, the, ba- the Band-Aid metaphor. Right. But it doesn't go deep into the actual preventative measures that created the scar in the first place. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was just thinking about the ways in which you know, we do work expecting certain kinds of quote unquote payment and like, you know, how virtue signaling works into that and um, how people expect, and, you know, look, looking around this this party penthouse of a literary hub, I see no cookies, um, <laughs> you know, like th- this is the sort of work that we think should be the default that should be um, assumed. And yet I think people are most willing to do exactly what you're saying, like the work that is visible and then there's all of this other work that is not particularly it's the work of reading widely and reading in spaces where you might be less comfortable or might just know less and might have to remain silent and take stuff in mm-hmm. rather than just commenting all the time and then there's also that notion like what you were um you know like when you identify a problem there's the rhetoric of well you've seen the problem so you should come up with the solution because i feel like this work is i mean it's exciting it's also i mean you you were talking about editing the anthology being a lot of work gets really tiring too it does it does and I was paid for the anthology (laughs) I was actually given checks for that (laughs) it was funny because as you're saying I remember one of these was face to face and I said so and I think it was also yeah I'm a black woman if you didn't know and I think there's this automatic assumption that comes when I sit down and yeah, I'm from New York, so sometimes I just probably have this, no, I know I have this directness to me that's just like, what's the problem? This is what needs to happen. And so I sat down and she seemed tired. It was a white woman of a, an editor at a major lit mag. I said, so what are you doing about diversity at your literary magazine? And that was my first question because it was kind of these, you know, speed dating situations where you had 10 minutes. And right. so I said, I, I have to get straight to the question. I can't do this lead in crap. <laughs> so, and she just said, well, what do you expect? What do you suggest us to do? And automatically I saw shut down. Automatically. It was immediate. And the body language changed. And she just said, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, we do, we have readers, and you know, the thing is readers aren't getting paid, so it kind of affects who we get, but we do reach out, and I mean, look at the, look at the space, and da-da-da-da-da, and she said, oh, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I do this podcast, and da-da-da. Oh, okay, what's the name? She didn't write any of it down or anything. She said, okay, yeah, I'll take a listen to it. She just checked out. Right. And it was funny because then I saw her again the next year because I specifically requested to see her again. And her whole vibe had changed. So maybe it was just that day or something. But I love saying, I, I think you don't give a crap. I uh-huh. really think you don't give a crap. <laughs> and then I see her a year later and she's like, I remember you. And we had a lovely conversation. And I did bring up representation again. And she said, yeah. We, and she just seemed more open to it. And I don't know what happened. Huh. in the span of a year. I literally don't know what happened. Things didn't change that much, but her attitude definitely changed. And so I just kind of kept pushing of, okay, you're asking me for labor. I might give it to you in this moment. But then someone else asked me for labor because they were called out for having no POC mentors and offering a mentorship program. And she said, well, I'm in Germany. 
can you help me? And I said, you know what? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) And this was over Facebook. So I felt, I said, no, I can't figure, no. And she said, okay, I respect that. I appreciate that. So it depends on the reaction, but you do have to kind of, if it's monetary, if there's monetary gain for other people, I will always do the work and give them names of other people because I want people to benefit monetarily. And then I have to think about it in other respects of how much am I going to give to you about this? But now I actually go to places and say, if you have a freelance opportunity for a consultant, I would like to help you do this or connect you with people who can. And now I put it out there that if you're going to ask me to do this work, I want to be financially compensated for it. And then I donate that money a lot of the time. The money goes to my podcast. The money goes to other organizations. It's not as though... I'm buying, you know, you know, freaking Jimmy Choo's, you know, <laughs> but Jimmy Choo's are lovely. But you know, that's you know, it usually goes. To you can just take a pair from the closet. <laughs> uh, uh, penthouse here. And we some Balenciagas. We always give them. People don't know this. We do it under the table, but it's, we do give those to guests who appear on the show. <laughs> We're here with Jessica Eckersdorfer, uh, who's the art and design editor of Paper Darts, who's a co-sponsor of this party tonight. Um, and we're going to ask her a question. I think our listeners would like to know how you think about the art that goes with the pieces that the editors accept. Like, what is that process like? How do you read work and come up with images that that showcase and illustrate and also stand on their own? So we have a whole community of artists that we work with on a regular basis. Um, Our artist solicitor editor, Maya Beck, actually has a pool that she knows our readers of the magazine and know what kind of tone we're looking for, and then assigns stories to uh, illustrators that she thinks would be most appropriate. But in addition, we also do artist features on a regular basis. So I actually curate through the internet, through festivals, different artists that we interview as well. Thank you so much. You're on the in that conversation with that editor. You're now in the editor's seat at, at Electric Lit, where you mm-hmm. can accept edit, uh, essays, and people will uh, write and pitch you. I, I presume, right? Yeah. So, and I know our listeners would love to be published in Electric Literature. Yay! So. Tell us what they should do when they're writing you. What do you look for? What are you looking at? What what is interesting to you about a, a pitch letter? What kind of things are you? Can I say to see? what you shouldn't do? Yes, yeah. that would be good. <laughs> you shouldn't do. Hello, how much do you pay? And here's my essay because I've literally gotten pitches like that. And I suggest don't doing pitches that are as long as the essay itself because I've gotten that literally 900 word pitches. And I would say, as I say on Twitter all the time, please, please, please read Electric Literature because it is specialized. It is not a general interest literary magazine. It is a specialized one that looks at literature and the intersections of art. So if your essay is about your dog and it's not <laughs> any way related to art and or media. skiing. <laughs> I've, I've gotten the dog, the mom. i gotten a lot of stuff on moms and parents and grief, which is great. That's great. It's just not for us. And the number one reason I reject stuff is because people don't look at the website, sadly. And it's free. Electric literature is free. So I'd say I will look at anything as long as it aligns with our 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 mission statement and I always give direct feedback on why I'm rejecting a piece so I don't send I personally do not send form 
rejections, I will say the reason this isn't working is because you have 18 different things going on in this essay. The reason this isn't working is because what you said it was isn't what was put on the page. I would love to see a revise and submit or the voice isn't right for us. It's more right for a kind of tradey, you know, femme focused magazine or something like that. So I always give very specific feedback on why I'm rejecting you so that you don't think that you suck. <laughs> That's incredibly generous feedback. It's because I don't get 800 submissions. It's usually because I get several dozen. Oh. If I was Jess and I was doing the submittable, I would probably be just like, I can't do this anymore. But because I get dozens at the time, I, I take the time to read them. Also because I just want people to learn. Is that because they're curated by somebody on their way to you? Now people usually just send, submit to me. Oh, okay. so I, I'll just say, yeah, just submit. It's Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, at electricliterature.com. Well, there's the end of your dozens of submissions. <laughs> I, hey, bring it. It'll just take longer for me to respond. So <laughs> right now like, you're getting dozens in like dozens in what what span of time? Every few weeks. Okay. It, it kind of, you know, there's the lull. The holiday season is kind of quiet. And then January, boom, everyone wrote over the week. <laughs> or, you know, Mother's Day's happening. I have this. Oh, it's this, uh, you know. Or it's Father's Day. I have something for Father's Day. Is it helpful Day. to tie things to holidays like that? Absolutely. Or not? Oh, it does help. Absolutely. Okay. But it's did to do and that. And how far ahead do you need to give it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Way more than two days before Father's Day. Okay. Especially if I've never read your work and it doesn't. Is three yeah. weeks enough? Three or? weeks is great. Okay. Because there are things you know that are happening. You know when Father's Day is coming. You know it's not as though we're predicting when this is happening. <laughs> you know, it's like St. Patrick's Day. I don't know, guys. I don't know when that day is gonna land. It, it could be weird. It could be the twenty first. It could be the twenty third. We don't know. But you know, it's gonna be March seventeenth. You know, like when St. Patty's Day is gonna be. So, due diligence. So. Um, it sounds like you're, you're giving feedback when you're rejecting people. When you accept something, what kind of editorial work do you do with the writers whose work you, you accept and are going to publish? I line edit. I'm a line editor by nature. And that's my full-time job. I do uh, managing editorial. So I go in and I actually say highlight areas and say, this. It, you said this and now you're contradicting yourself. I Googled this and you said that no one read her book, but she was on 10 bestseller, you know, like best books list. So how does that translate to what you're saying? You know, you introed this and made it very personal and then you totally extract yourself from the rest of the essay. Uh, this is a lot of passive voice versus active voice. I would change for this. So I do very, very specific line edits in that sense. See, this is really interesting because, I mean, some of, I think, I mean, maybe this is a myth, but right um, as this editorial staff at Literary Magazines has gotten more and more stretched, um, fewer and fewer people getting paid less to read more. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the things that is um, like a prevailing notion about Literary Magazines is that when you send your story in, it you're not going to get much in the way of editorial feedback. They're either going to take it or send it away, and you may never know why, but that there's that editors are not editing anymore. And both you and Bridget have basically given us the opposite, um, the opposite, the opposite feedback that you are really working with writers and giving them feedback and taking the time to do that. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that's still going on at a lot of other magazines? 
It really depends on the magazine and who's creating it. Jess Zimmerman, who's the editor-in-chief at Electric Lit, she's like me. She line edits. She'll just go in there and just tear your stuff up, and I love it. I love that she does that. She actually's like, I feel like you're not getting to the point quick enough, and I love that. So she's like that, and I'm like that. And But I can understand people who are just like, yeah, this is cool, because you haven't developed that editorial eye, but you started a literary magazine. And I said this on a panel yesterday, is the reason an editor may reject something is not necessarily bad writing. And bad writing is a very kind of umbrella term. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It can be the execution. And if I, as an editor, have never worked with you before, and it needs a lot of work, but I see a kernel there, am I gonna take that time to work with you on it? And how do I know what you're gonna turn around? And that's usually what's going on in my editorial mindset is, is this that messy that you can fix it? Or is this tight enough as is that I can help you fix it and you can turn it around pretty decently? And that's usually the weight of it. It's, okay, this is, this is a little messy, but we can work with it. This is a lot messy, and I've never worked with you, and I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> so you need to come back to me later and fix it yourself. And when I've submitted stuff, it's usually very, very clean, and that's usually gotten very minor edits. So like my Long Reads essay that published recently, the, the one that was, in, that was notable in Best American Essay, that got very, very minor edits, not because I think I'm a great writer. I think I'm a good writer. Uh, but because I spend so much time on my work, I submit it when it is clean. And not all writers do that. And that's okay. But you need to understand that that may be your downfall in <laughs> the rejection. And that also means you need to broaden your community and your own editorial eye. Well, this has been what I would call a very clean, non-messy <laughs> interview. Beautiful. In a penthouse. Super helpful. With chandeliers and <laughs> I think there were deer. <laughs> They're fauna people. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. It's really a pleasure. And to our for our listeners, uh, make sure to check out Jennifer's work, which we'll link to in our show notes, and also the anthology Everyday People. Thank you again. We do want to ask Dan um, about what percentage of, we had a listener ask about what percentage of of people get submitted, submit compared to actually get accepted. And I wonder what that looks like for him in terms of the pieces that are pitched to him at Slate. Uh, Yeah, so I um, edit a a couple of different sections at Slate. uh, Maybe for your readers, the one of most interest is the book section. Um, And uh, I would say I probably get five to six slush uh, submissions or pitches a day. Um, And we we assign pretty widely to freelancers in this particular department at Slate, I think more than most departments at Slate. And so I probably assign two or three freelance pieces a month um, out of that, which is obviously not a great hit rate. But is but it is a place that you can land at the magazine uh, with a cold submission, which I think could be harder in a lot of other sections. Thank you so much. I mean, that's a lot better than the literary magazine rate, I would think. I mean, I think people would be surprised at that. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, having worked at literary magazines long, long ago, I know that the that the that that's a veritable flood that comes in, um, and the hit rate can be zero. But you know, it, if you're writing for internet magazines, there is a hunger maw of uh, uh, that needs to be ever filled with content and there's an opportunity out there thank you so much have fun at the party thanks 
content for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. If you enjoy the show, you can do one easy thing to help us out. That is, give us a rating on iTunes. It takes just a second. It really matters. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.